get rid of all of the timelines you have in your mind for how long you're supposed to grieve, get rid of the stages, get rid of anything that you think you have to do because it is different for everybody. What's up, everyone? It's your boy, Danny Priori, and welcome to Off the Cuff. You might know me as the guy from the basement yard, Vine, the Priori podcast. And while I love to make people laugh, just know that I've struggled with my mental health for most of my life, just like many of you. Here on Off the Cuff, I will be talking with some of the most impactful influencers, athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and mental health experts to have real, unapologetic conversations about mental health and breaking the stigma that surrounds it. This show is for you, and I'm so happy to have you here. Now, let's talk Off the Cuff. Welcome back to Off the Cuff. I'm your host, Daniel Priori, and today I am joined by writer, speaker, entrepreneur, and author of the book, Grief is love. Marissa, Renee, Marissa, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So first thing I have to ask is you were an appointee for President Obama, right? I was. Okay. What does he smell like? (laughs) That's an amazing question. I actually couldn't tell you what he smells like. I will tell you he has a good handshake and he is like as gracious and kind as he comes across on TV. There was this one meeting I was in, you, you know, you're in the Oval Office. I had gotten food poisoning the day before. So like I almost didn't go to this meeting. It was like on something I was working on, but I was so sick. I was like, I don't know how I can get myself there. And also I don't want to throw up in the Oval Office. Like that would be horrible. My husband literally came home from work and found an old like nausea pill that was from when his mom had had cancer, gave it to me and some ginger ale and was like, you need to go. Like, Get dressed, put your makeup on, get out the door. And so I went and I'm sitting in there and I was the youngest person and least experienced person by a lot. And there was a pause in the presentation that we were doing. And you know, the president just turns to me and is like, you know, Marissa, is there anything you'd like to add? you feel like the most important person in the world. And I'm like, even now my palms are starting to sweat, like just thinking back to it. And it's one of those things that totally unnecessary, but just so kind and inclusive and generous. And yeah, I think he's amazing. So the other thing too, there's not a lot of people that feel like they have an aura. Yeah. I feel like Beyonce has an aura. Oh, Anna has an aura. Drake has an aura. Uh, we were talking about like even Bruce Springsteen before here has an aura. Obama has an aura. 100%. There's a level of confidence and uh, intelligence and swagger. I was going to say he's got the swagger. So what an appointee is for people like me that don't know what that word means. So that's a great question. Essentially, there are two classes of employees in our federal government. There are career civil servants. These are folks, you know, many of whom have taken like a civil service exam. They've signed up for federal service and like work at different agencies, offices, you know, including places like the White House. And then the other class is a group called political appointees. Those are people that come in and are assigned to whatever administration hired them. And so I became a political appointee under President Obama. 
Like you, there is an oath of service that you give when you start your job on the first day. People take it very seriously. Yeah. And if you are an Obama appointee on January 20th of, you know, whatever the year is when someone else is going to come into power, like that is your last day at work. Or you can leave earlier, but like if you don't leave, like you will be asked to leave. So yeah, yeah. So like you get on your own helicopter and have to leave. Yeah, no helicopter, but you got to go. You got to go. So were you there the first term and second term or were you there second term or first term? I actually was there both because I joined in 2010 and I left in 2014. That's job uh, stability right there. I don't know anybody that's had the same job for eight years. Dude, it is, but it isn't because I will never forget the amount of stress going into the reelect. Because, you know, you just, you never know. And at the time there was like the rise in the Tea Party and lots of backlash against any number of things we were doing, but especially around healthcare. And so we were terrified, you know, I was like, okay, like, I'm ride or die. I'm sticking with this, but I might not have a job in a couple months. I owned my first home at the time. Like it was, it was scary. But once he got reelected, then you're just chilling. So you double up, you get the eight years, right? Sure, you voted your ass off, you know, because now you got your job online. Yes. I mean, that's like <laughs> yes. an extra vote. You know what I mean? That's yes. a super vote. Could you like kind of move around the White House like carte blanche kind of? Yes and no. So most work happens in a building that is like sort of, it's not like a real road, but it's kind of like across like a driveway from the White House that like everyone envisions, right? Like that building. Guys on the roof. Yes. 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 There are are actually guys on both roofs, but like that building, you know, we think of like, you know, Independence Day, like like those crazy action movies and they have the White House. That building is actually very small. And the majority of it is reserved for like the big public events. Now you see like the blue room or you see, you know, places when like we do a big state dinner as a country, like you see those kinds of spaces, like nobody is actually working there. You might walk through that area to get to a meeting, but like no work is happening there. Yeah. So like the, the real working space is the West wing and it is tiny. Like people get packed in there like sardines. Like it is very, very small. I visited DC once when I was like 13. And when you're smaller and younger, things look bigger. Everything is bigger. And, and I went back like a couple of years ago and saw the White House. I was like, what place is small? Yeah. Yeah. Compared to other countries, like, you know, grand palaces and things like that, like it really is tiny. Yeah. So also there's like different levels of security clearance. So depending on your badge, like you can certainly walk around. But also, if you tried to just walk up into the situation room, like you can't just do that. You need right, to have right. special clearance, special badge, and there's people standing outside. You know, it's, so it's it is still very secure, and at the same time, like you know, we could walk on. It's called the promenade. It's like along the rose garden. Like if you had a I blue badge, yeah. you could just walk over there. You know, from one meeting to another, or do like a walking meeting with someone. Like best place to do a walking meeting in the country that's, i think that's the thing that's so wild about it though because it's like you know you're at work but yeah. i still feel like people are like oh yeah oh yeah you know what i mean so it's um, like kind of cool like did you get to a point where you kind of just forgot about it no because here's what every time you no. start to forget about it 
something would happen that would remind you that like, this is big, this is serious, like we have to pay attention and, you know, take ourselves seriously and treat things in a certain way, whether it was, you know, I ran into Bill Gates one time in the building, you know, I'm just running to a meeting on my Blackberry, this dorky looking guy is on his phone or whatever. And he walked right into me and was like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. And I was like, Oh, you know, no worries, whatever. And then after I passed him, I was like, Oh my God, that was Bill Gates. That's right. He's like speaking on a panel this afternoon. Like things like that would happen. Or one day I was leaving work. I haven't thought about this in years. I think the true story was someone had thrown like firecracker over the fence. I remember that. Yeah. And you know, where I'm walking out to like go get on the bus or subway or whatever, it was like super close to where it happened. And like all of a sudden you hear the pop, pop, pop and people like, you know, men with guns they like go into action immediately you're rushed back into the building the building's in lockdown and you don't know like we didn't know what had happened at that moment you know we're just sitting there like hoping we're okay you know texting my husband i don't know if someone with a gun is here or what like it's real it's intense well i mean after january 6th it's not hard to uh, think think about everything you know what i mean i'd be afraid too yeah i have two more white house questions did you have access to like like ice cream and stuff? Like, could you be like working a late night and be like, let me get one of the Obama ice cream sandwiches? And again, this is like, if you have the appropriate badge, because there's like a regular cafeteria for like general staff. Right. And then the guy that I worked with, he it's, it's called like a blue badge. So you can go over to the White House mess. And there you have like a personal account and you can just like charge things to your account. And so- ice cream is something you could charge to your account there. But we were... I mean, we were mostly getting coffee because we were yeah. exhausted. <laughs> like, I mean, you got to always find time to sneak in ice cream. That's just where my head goes. You know no, I, I feel you. I feel you. It is an experience. It is good. And one of the fun things that we would do sometimes, like you could eat in the White House mess and like you might be sitting at a table. Yeah. Like with, you know, fancy tablecloth, whatever. And then next to you is the Secretary of State or Treasury or Commerce or whatever. And you're like, this is weird and crazy. But yeah, yes. it was awesome. I'm so, I'm just very fascinated with like how the White House works. You know, you see what you see like on TV, right? And you try to formulate how it actually works. And, and then you see all these people like coming and going and, and it looks like, Crazy. yeah, like you see Obama, like when he, he was president, he would just like run up the stairs and go in his house. But like, there's yeah. so many like intricate working so just to walk in there. Yep. Which was, oh, I'm always fascinated oh, yeah. like that. I had a friend who was in the Secret Service and he served during the Bush presidency. And every time that we would talk about politics, he would have to leave the room. It was one of those things where, yeah, like you, we couldn't. Oh, that's talk. interesting. I didn't even yeah, know we, that. Yeah, we couldn't talk politics around him. And he never told us anything about what happened at work, which is kind yeah, of. Yeah, that's a different kind of job. But have you ever been like escorted by like Secret Service? I've helped them escort people. We did a big meeting with tech leaders at some point, probably 2013, 2014. And Mark Zuckerberg was coming to the meeting. And because of his security needs, you know, the various issues that he has to deal with, with people, you know, I mean, I guess people wanting to kill him and such, unfortunately, we had to give him like special escort support to get him onto White House grounds, yeah. So enough about your super cool, because I'll tell you this, I could sit here and talk to you for three hours about cool White House stuff. (laughs) But what I really, really, really want to talk about is 
you being a grief advocate. So when you hear grief and advocate together, it's like an oxymoron of a sentence, right? It's oh, like, yeah. I totally I'm made it up. Grief. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, when I always hear that, like, because I consider myself a, a mental health advocate, but sometimes it's, you know, anxiety advocate or yeah. panic advocate. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's almost like panic fanatic. You know what I mean? Like, it's something that I deal with. Before we get into what the five stages of grief are, because I'm super fascinated by that as well. When you have grief advocate next to your name, what do you think that actually coincides with what goes with it? Because I feel like a lot of people, and I'm not saying you, I've said this on many shows before, like mental health's like kind of cool now. It's trendy. Yeah. But with trendiness comes vultures. You know what I mean? I always tell people like, I didn't go impatient to like come out. It's like, you know, it's like, I always say I was depressed before it was cool. (laughs) that's my joke like i got i got retro depression you know what i mean (laughs) so you know it's like for for you to actually put yourself out there and say i'm a grief advocate that's also stuff you kind of have to deal with right like being like oh like is somebody cloud chasing like what does this person know about grief what's the deal for you to actually become a grief advocate what went into that entire process what was kind of the catalyst in you becoming a grief advocate? So a lot of people a few years ago, as I was speaking more and writing more about grief and loss, started calling me a grief expert. And that felt very uncomfortable because I I know myself pretty well. I know a lot about grief and loss, both from lived experience and research. But when it shows up in my life, I forget most of what I know and become the same mess that everyone is when horrible things happen to them, you know? And so for me, I was like, I don't want that title. I don't think it's true. Like I think, and to your point, you know, especially when we look at social media, like the things that people peddle and claim expertise around either because it's trendy or they're trying to make money or, you know, whatever, like it just really bothers me and feels very icky. And so I went with advocate instead because I think true grief expertise we should be looking at like the various researchers and folks who come up with models for how we cope, like the, the people whose research went into grief is love. Like to me, those are the experts. You know, oh, Dr. Yeah. Christy Dankla, she's a bereavement expert, researcher, and professor at Harvard. And she's the person who supported all of the research that went into grief is love. Like that is an expert. I am not an expert. I'm an advocate because what I am advocating for is for everybody to have access to whatever it is they need to grieve when grief arrives and whatever it is they need to heal. Because fundamentally in this country, and obviously you know a lot of this from the mental health space, what you are able to access when you are struggling with any sort of mental health challenge, whether it be grief, anxiety, depression, et cetera, it is limited by your income, your class, your race, your gender, where you live, et cetera. And I think that's bullshit. So I am advocating for the things that we all need to heal to be more equally distributed in this country. I was just talking to my producer before, like I'm losing my health insurance. It's so weird because like the government like flexes on you sometimes because they'll be like, yeah, like you kind of like had a good year last year. You're going to have to like pay a little more for everything now. So I'm like, Like, really? Like, damn, dude. I was like, I made all that. I'm trying to save this. Yeah. 
so that's like kind of what I'm dealing with now to speak to, to what you were just uh, talking about. But also the thing is too, is like before the show, I always tell people like, I'm not a mental health professional. I don't know shit. You know, yeah. I, all, all yeah. I know is what I go through. And then people are like, you know what? I've struggled with something similar. And that's why I love to have people on this show. Everybody has a different backstory and I love the backstories. But the thing I always talk about is I'm very fascinated about the work that people put in because it kind of inspires me to be a little more professional with how I approach things. I get to steal a little something from everybody that comes on the show. I try to find the levity in a lot of things because also like mental health can be like daunting, you know? Oh, totally. If you talk about grief all the time, even if like you don't have grief, at some point you're going to go home with some grief because we're human beings, you know? We've probably heard some crazy shit from people. Yeah, no, it's... It's awful. Heard some and lived through some. I think I probably first encountered grief when I was a teenager and just didn't have words for it. You know, my mom was a healthy, you know, working mom, Sunday school teacher, PTA, all, all that good stuff. And one day she just got sick and she never got better. And it took three years to even figure out that she had MS. And then from there, she just got sicker and she was gone a couple weeks after I turned 25. So yeah, like all, everything I share is absolutely grounded in lived experience and research because I think that that's really important. Do you talk to your mom still? Oh yeah, all the time. All the time, 100%. I find comfort in that from time. Sadly, I've had a lot of, a good amount of friends who have passed away from oh, uh, OD, yeah, ODs or car accidents, you know, um, and stuff like that. But people think it's, crazy to do that but i feel like having conversations with lost ones is like it's kind of a cool thing it really helps to have conversations totally. with people that aren't here and i would say most of the people i know in the grief space you know who like run their own nonprofits, writers etc they'll tell you the exact same thing like they they definitely yeah. do it and even my son he turns two soon and like he knows my mom as grandma lisa and he'll like right. pick up a picture and be like oh grandma lisa Grandma Lisa, Grandma Lisa, nice. I'm like, oh, is she? Like, you, yeah, right. you know that. Like, so yeah, I think those kinds of things keep people alive. Yeah, I just spoke to somebody before this about having kind of a. His name was uh, Ben Nemton. He wrote a bucket list journal that we spoke about yesterday. Yeah, it's really cool. But you know, we talked about kind of accepting death kind of as being something that is inspirational, right? As sad as something is, you know, someone like losing their mom or that's when we start to look internally. I remember when my, when my grandmother died, my uncle was like, we're next. Like that generation is gone. You know what I mean? So like it becomes, for me, I've had to kind of like accept death, knowing that it's one thing that's going to happen to all of us. With dealing with people who deal with grief, is it mostly people worried about their own lives or is it the actual loss of the person? Because I feel like it it coincides. Like if both my parents are still here, I don't think I'll really believe in death until one of them is gone, obviously. You know what I mean? Because they're my creators, right? So I always feel, am I going to be able to accept that? Oh my God, what's going to happen to me? You hear so many people talk about like, never be the same like i'll never be like a person again for you in that sense of grief was that something that you kind of had to deal with too like i'll never be able to like be a person again or my life is over what's that kind of sense almost like 
that you have to go yeah. through? So the way I think about grief, I'll give you a few things. So in Grief is Love, I define grief as the repeated experience of learning to live in the midst of a significant loss. Because uh-huh. I think there is a big part of that loss that is about us. Because at the end of the day, like the people you love and who love you in return in this life, like they are a big part of your identity. You know, like the people who you claim as yours, whether it's, you know, a spouse, a child, a parent, a best friend, like you have become who you are in part because of their influence, your relationship with them, how they see you, how they see the world, et cetera. So like the loss of them, you know, still being living, breathing people in this world, like it does change you as an individual. Like it is absolutely a transformative process for you to then think about, okay, who am I, Danny, now that dad is gone? Like, how do I think about the world? How do I see the world? How do I continue to have a relationship with him? Why do I continue to have a relationship? There's a lot of pieces and things to unpack there. I think the thing that makes grief hard, and you know, I, I titled my book, Grief is Love, and some people or like, how can grief be love when you know you hear love, you think of rainbows and sunshine and butterflies and like all good things and whatever. At the end of the day, love is both feeling and action. And when we lose people we love, I think we can definitely still continue to find ways to communicate with them, to feel their love, to love them in return, etc. But the painful, horrible part of grief is the part where you also have to acknowledge that they are not here to act on that love anymore. You know, my mom's not here helping me plan my kid's second birthday party, which like she would absolutely love to do. You know, she's not here as my husband and I navigate getting ready to lose his mom to the exact same disease that killed my mom. You know, like she wasn't there when I lost a pregnancy that like we thought was our chance to finally grow our family. Like, and so figuring that out is where I think a lot of people get stuck and suffer. And also, I think a lot of people suffer unnecessarily because we are such a grief-averse society that it feels like, you know, if you're still sad about mom or husband or whomever passed away over a year ago or over six months ago, and you're like, there's something wrong with you. And that is just fundamentally not true. Right. And, And the other thing too is like, as a society, like, we domesticate like animals too. So it's like, yeah, we'll buy a dog, right? Knowing it's like really only going to live like eight, 10 years. Don't even, don't even get me started. My dog turns 13 this year. So like, I can't talk about it. Um, <laughs> again, that's why I'm not a great expert. I'm like, my dog's going to turn 13 this year. Don't talk to me. <laughs> but think about that. Like as humans, it's like, oh yeah. Like we're such a cross that bridge when we get there. This t- entire oh, community. I know. Like I always think about that. Like I have two dogs, right? And I'm like, why How old are they? Going to be three in August and going to okay. be two in December. So they're both. Okay, dogs. you're good. <laughs> so uh, we're good. But I literally have the thought sometimes when I'm petting them and loving them. I'm like, why the fuck did I? Why do- did I do this? Why did I do why this? Why did I, I do this? To I, know. I know. I'm setting yeah. myself up for two of the worst days of I my life. I know. And then the worst part is, I don't know about you, but like once you're a dog person. Like you're a dog person. So like, you know, we're going to lose Sadie at some point. Are we then going to get another dog at some point after that? Yes, of course we are. 
people you have to are. like have, human being we're so selfish yeah. about everything that we do it's outrageous yes, you know and, but like we kind of earned it though if you really think about it because i wish i had the ignorance of a dog oh my god oh my god it would be so great like it would be, it would so, be so great, great. it's like oh. you know like everything's so happy it's like oh this guy like I love my wife. But not as much as your dog? Not as much as my dog loves <laughs> my wife. You know what I mean? So it's crazy. I wish that I could feel like that jubilant. And it's so wild to really think about because we go through all these things in life and we have these dogs who are like, they become our children in a sense, which is the most American shit ever. I know. I you know. know. It really is. <laughs> Dude, that you know? one really is super American. Like, I don't think, I mean, maybe Canada. Maybe, but like, Maybe. I don't think there's anywhere else you can go where people worship their pets the way that we do. The dog doesn't even come in the house. And then the thing is, too, it's like these dogs have to go to the vet every like six months. If you go to like other countries, the dogs are like, What is that? Yeah, they go, they live outside. Uh, did we pay last year to get our dog's teeth cleaned? Yeah, I did. Like, we did like like those are the things that we do <laughs> my dog went to the dentist last year more than i did stop seriously yeah I, I had to take my dog to the dentist three times that's insane well he cracked his tooth chewing on something oh. so uh, they had to like check for nerve damage and then when you're in oh there like oh you know what we should do we should clean his yes. teeth there's oh. always a we can also i'm like really yeah. can you so we're gonna run a, a gum test the gum scrape so like I had to like you know how it is. Oh but you know yes. before we get any more sad talking about <laughs> no. what I did want to talk about is the loss of a pregnancy. My mother had two yeah. miscarriages, but you know, had four kids. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, my parents were fucking, but I hope they listen to your podcast. Oh, they listen to all of my podcasts. My mom and dad, I have another podcast with my brothers where we just talk oh. about like the wildest shit like our parents like have ever done. You know what I mean? Like, so my mom's Puerto Rican and my dad's Italian. So you could already put together. Oh my God. My mom was half Puerto Rican. So I feel you. I can, yeah. yeah. You, know, you, know, you know what I'm saying? So you uh, have escaped death yourself on a couple of occasions. I'm sure. <laughs> They're like legends of our podcast and stuff. And my parents, they come to my stand-up shows. I remember speaking to my mom about it, about having a miscarriage. I didn't really get to know my parents super duper well until like I started to have problems. Uh, you know what I mean? And they were like, I told you. You yeah. know, you know yeah. like, this is going to go on in your life. I tried to tell you, you should have listened to me 10 years ago. Yeah, no, why um, did you do that? You know, so I've been blessed enough to really kind of rekindle a, a friendship with them, but also a, a camaraderie with them and build a nice rapport with them later in life. Now that we're all adults, yeah. um, you know, and I, I talked to her about having a miscarriage and what she said to me, go, she said, even though I had other kids at the time, there's times in my life where I actually think about those children. And I was like, whoa. And she was like, you know, like in a sense, like you think about names for them, you think, yeah, you just create their legacy before they're even here. And she would deal with grief after that, you know? Yeah. For you, how much different is it from like a wanted pregnancy? Have you talked to somebody who had a miscarriage through like an unwanted pregnancy, like something that you really have to deal with? I always say, like, people get pregnant like so easy. And I'm like, oh, jealous. Yeah. I feel like it's just yeah. not going to be that easy for me. I, I for some reason I just made don't that. Don't say up. that. Don't say no, that. I say that, but then I'm also like, dude, you have a penis. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? It's like I'm over here like worrying about all these <laughs> female things. Like for you, what was the roller coaster, right? Because you find out you're pregnant. Yeah. Everyone's happy. You go through something traumatic like that. The hardest thing is the partnership of it, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was really devastating because there's like, there's layers to it, right? So I learned when I was doing research for Grief is Love and just like kind of digging back into some of my own stuff in order to tell the story that like the doctors and specialists that I've seen over the years believe that my underlying infertility was actually caused from all of the grief and trauma that I experienced when my mom was dying. And so like, that's like one piece of it. So you're already like pissed off and like griefy about the fact that, you know, you can't conceive naturally. Right. So like, that's like one piece. And so then we started our process of trying to become parents in 2016. Mm. Fast forward to 2019, which means, you know, we'd already spent tens of thousands of dollars, you know, all of the invasive tests and procedures and doctor's appointments and like things that just didn't work out. And so finally we're in 2019, we have one remaining healthy embryo. And so it's like, this is it. Like, of course it's going to work. My underlying health condition is basically like super, super, super early menopause. Like my body went into menopause when I was like 24, 25 years old. Yeah. And so we had to go through the process of finding donor eggs, which is its own complicated, messy thing. And, you know, we wanted someone who was black and like the finding that was like really hard. So like that alone took months. Like it was a complete fucking mess. And so finally we get to 2019. We have the one we're like doing it. Like we're doing literally everything in our power for this to work. And a couple of weeks later we found out like blood test shows you were briefly pregnant, but you're not pregnant anymore. And then the fallout from that. So like, it was both like, oh my God, like, what are we going to do now? Like tens of thousands of dollars spent. Like I'm not a, a trust fund kid. Neither is my husband. Like, right. <laughs> what is the plan? Where are we going from here? Piles yeah. Up. And yeah. I got super sick, which like, I knew I was going to get kind of sick because, you know, there's a process that has to take place in your body. It was so, so awful. And of course, then all I wanted was my mom who'd been dead for 11 years at that point, it was awful. But it was the thing that then led to grief is love, ultimately, because I realized through the process of the pregnancy loss that I wasn't like over the loss of my mom. And that's when I came upon this idea. I'm like, what does it even mean to get over it? Like, what am I getting over? Like, I had a mom who was great for 25 years, and then she died. Am I just supposed to forget about that? that like that doesn't make any fucking sense yeah and so i wrote an article to that effect that went somewhat viral and then by august of 2020 i had a book deal and it was all because i was just grieving and angry and yeah super fucking pissed off and it was covid so like i couldn't access any of my normal healthy or slightly less healthy coping mechanisms so i wrote and now we have a book i always think about relationships right it's I feel like now that I'm married, I could say this. You got to let girls be girls. And because yes. the sense that the, I have to understand that there's going to be things I can't understand. 
hundred percent. That leads to me sometimes not as much now, but like it would make me angry. And then when I would get angry about stuff in a relationship, I would get sad after for like getting angry. So like, what's kind of like the association between anger and, and grief or anger and sadness? Is there a correlation between them? Because sometimes I, there is, I'm sure there yes, is. Right? Yes. Now I'm making some headway. I, this is what I talk about. Now I get to steal something from you for free. Yes. You can steal whatever you want. So first of all, my husband and I coped very differently with the pregnancy loss, as you can imagine. He's like a wears heart on his sleeve kind of person, more so than I am. And yeah, I'm a crybaby too. He he like immediately like melted into the floor, you know, crying when we got the call from the doctor. And I was like, "It's okay. It, they made a mistake. I'm sure." Like I went into denial, left the house, got a pregnancy test, got a bunch of pregnancy tests actually, because like I needed to see for myself. I mean, the whole time as we were dealing with it, it was basically like that. Like Matt was ahead of me in everything because I was in denial. And then I was also consumed by like the physical situation of it. So like I couldn't deal with any of the emotions and he is more prone as I think a lot of men are not as like criticism, more prone to getting like angry about things than I am. Whereas I was more just like fucking devastated and wanted to crawl into a hole and just like die and be left alone. And what I learned through the research that I did for grief is love is that anger is a very normal part of grief. Like Mm. oftentimes when anger shows up, it is masking like deep sorrow. And so when we feel angry about things, it's really important to pay attention to that. And I think a lot of times when we feel angry about stuff, we try to ignore it or like push it down or push it aside because we aren't taught that anger is like a normal human emotion. We're taught yes. that, you know what I mean? Like, like anger is something like, oh, like, you know, like nobody wants to be angry. You like, you especially don't want to be the angry black woman, you know, whatever. When really anger is just a normal part of how we are all supposed to feel sometimes. And it's really important to pay attention to it because it can help you get at like, what is the thing that's really bothering you? Like some things people do just confuse me. It's like if somebody doesn't do something exactly the way I wanted it to be done or, you know what I mean? Like my first thing is to become angry and be filled with the anger. But sometimes like I'll end up sitting on the couch. I'm like, it's usually stemmed in something that I didn't do in the due process leading up to the moment. Yes. You realize, oh, maybe I should have done this or that instead. Yeah. Yeah. So like if a thing that like little stuff like, oh, this thing's going to get here on Monday. I needed it on Friday. I knew I should have just paid for the overnight shipping and I didn't, <laughs> yes. not let, you know what I mean? So now I'm angry that it's not getting here on time, but it's my fault. It's like, really, you could have done something differently. <laughs> yeah, I think, a lo- I think a lot of my anger issues that I had to kind of deal with was just kind of accepting responsibility for a lot of the reasons why I was angry. <laughs> Fair enough, but you figured it out. I'm still it figuring out. it out, but like, yeah, a lot of the reasons why I get angry is because I'm trying to figure out that, yeah, you, you're the reason you're angry. It's not the thing that is making yes. me angry. I'm making me angry. Yes. You know, so I, I've been trying to just get better on how I control myself, but you know, the comedy business is kind of tough. You gotta have to, oh, God. Enough, in a sense, I can't even imagine I have said multiple times, like anytime we end up watching like a stand-up special on Netflix, I'm like, I think that's one of the hardest jobs. 
Like I can't, and like I speak on stage all the time, but like that is like a totally different ball game. It's hard because there's no like do overs. It's not like you could be messing up a joke and be like, all right, you oh, know, let me say that again. Yeah, yeah, let's go back. We'll punch me back in, or there's no backtrack playing. Although I think Chris Rock may have done that in oh, his like, up. right? And he said, said why, oh, I said that wrong. But that's why you don't do comedy specials that big live because shit like that happens. Interesting. And I mean, yeah. it was still fine, obviously. It's yeah, I, like, I, got, I thought it was I a great special. Like, yeah. yeah, it all worked out in the end. But yes, yes. You know, hilarious. so that's why you'll see they, they go to their tapings. They'll tape a bunch of specials and either blend them to get uh, blend them together from like different cities or just use the one that they think is the best show that they did. Interesting. So okay. that's why you see somebody like that's on the road and be like, oh, it's a special taping. Like, you know, oh, so this like actually might be what they use on Netflix or HBO or channel. fascinating. Okay. Yeah. So that's why that's that's live comedy though. And like you also never know like if someone's like gonna flip out and hack yeah. it becomes Oh like, yeah, that's true. That's true. Huh. So you kind of have to do like the whole thing. Um, so just keep it in the in the lineage of family, right? Are you ever afraid that you might get MS? I dealt with that for a really long time. Turning 37 was really big for me. I'm 40 now, but 37 is when my mom first got sick. And so like, it was like super triggering to like get to 37. And I was like, am I going to get sick? Am I going to get sick? Am I going to get sick? Thankfully, I have a neurologist who I've seen on and off for years. And he was like, honestly, like you don't have any of these other risk factors. It's not like a straight genetic thing in the way that some right. cancers and you know other stuff is ms kind of tricky it's it's fairly odd it's something that like so many people have but there's still a lot of question marks around yeah. it yeah so yeah i i don't worry about that as much anymore i don't know something shifted and i just started to feel like i am someone who's gonna have like a longer life and now who yeah. the fuck knows like my 30s lots of anxiety because my mom you know first sick at 37 and she was dead at 49 like it's just a really Wild. short life. Yeah. Wild to think about it. Like the other day I was watching Deer Hunter or Robert De Niro. I'm not sure if you've ever seen that film. I'm sure you have. It's classic. And I was like, I wonder how old he is in this movie. And he's 34 and I'm 34 now. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, damn, dude, I'm the same age as Robert De Niro was in Deer Hunter. Like, <laughs> this is nuts. Like, this <laughs> like that's not okay. Yeah. I'm starting to like be like, wow, like, hold up. Wait, like I'm getting there. I'm getting up there. <laughs> And then you talk to somebody who's like 55 years old and like, dude, shut the fuck up. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Being black on the Harvard uh, campus, talk to me about it. Did you feel a little bit there? Did it feel a little uh, more inclusive? Because you, you, there's a stigma that goes with Ivy Leagues being like uh, tokens. We got tokens, yeah. around, you know, affirmative action and stuff like that. Did you feel like you had to deal with any of that while being on the Harvard campus? didn't feel like I had to deal with any of that in college. Harvard's got a good track record. I try to catch them all the time. They're good. They do a really good job, I think, figuring out how, like, who to bring in, how to bring people together. I would say my bigger challenge, frankly, was I had a very diverse group of close friends in college. Like, you know, there's like the Jewish girl, the Asian girl, international. Like, I had like a nice mix of everything, and. I felt like I was often left out of like all black things, you know, any like BSA type stuff because that's the direction that I was going in where like, I just wanted to be friends with everyone. And that was kind of hard um, because I didn't have that in high school. It made Um, you feel less black. Yeah. 
Yeah. Black activities. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, and so that was kind of a bummer, but no, I felt very welcomed and supported and I had an amazing four years. Like, yeah. Did, did you ever feel like pressure to like go to like a black a college? No. No. I feel like that's become like a big thing nowadays. And obviously I don't know shit about it because I'm not black, but you know. <laughs> it but has I, become more of a thing. It is. I feel right? like in like the last decade or so, when I was kid, so you know, I graduated high school in 2001, graduated college in 05. I also though grew up in an area that was predominantly white. And so I like that may have had something to do with it as well, but like from my parents' perspective, it was just you are going to college. Like that was an absolute right. non-negotiable. And then as I got a little bit older, it was like, you are going to a good college. We may not have money, but we don't care what it costs. Like we'll figure it out. You got to stun on some people. Like it was just like, we don't care. Like this, this is what's happening. So just like wrap your mind around it. And I always wanted to go to school in DC because I knew I wanted to work in politics. But then, you know, I got into Harvard and they gave the most money too, actually. Hey, look at that. Let me ask you a question. What's it like to be smart? <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. One of my husband's favorite things to do is whenever I do something stupid, he says, and it doesn't matter who's around. And she went to Harvard. He loves, loves, loves to do that. You don't know why? Because we're insecure. That's why. <laughs> my, wife, my wife went to college and I didn't go to college. I'd be like, oh, yeah, college is a girl over here. Yeah, you know what I mean? yes. It's like, all hater shit. We're all haters. Yes, yes. He's a supportive hater, and I have like an old sweatshirt from I don't from Forever Twenty One, like a million years ago. That's a Harvard sweatshirt, and my son's been pointing at it. You know, he's starting to figure out letters and numbers, and we're doing words. And I'm like, yeah, like this is where you're going to go to college. And my husband's just like, I can't, like I can't <laughs> with you. I'm like, I know, but like I want him to. <laughs> yeah, because like my my wife went to private school, and I always give her a hard time about it. Oh. Like, oh, I was like, oh, was that uh, was that nice? She went to Catholic school too. I was like, oh, that's cute. You know I mean? So I, I give her a hard time. She's just like, you just wish you went to like a private school. I, I went to a private school. It just wasn't Catholic. It was Jewish. That's, <laughs> that's all of my best friends were Jewish. Oh, I believe that where you grew up. My parents were broke, but we were able to finagle our way into like this really nice town through like a zoning issue. And then, like, all my friends were like Jewish kids that would like take me on ski trips with them. It was awesome. Like, I can't. Yeah, that's the way to roll. You know, sometimes it was hard being like, no, the people like aren't Puerto Rican and shit. Yeah. And yeah. then, like, hey, what's up? Like, you want to go to like Disneyland? I'm like, or Aspen or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. 100%. I was like, I can't afford that. They were like, neither can I. Our parents are going to pay for it. I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> I said, I'm never leaving here. So I wanted to say the best for last. No, you're very busy, but the five stages of grief. I wanted to have this be its own section where we kind I of hate them. I know, but I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to have like the last like five minutes of the episode really kind of go over each step. You know, you don't have to go crazy. No pun intended. Let me know what the five stages of grief are and the brief little definition for the listeners, because a lot of times with this show. People really don't know what they're going through until they listen to a guest on this show. As you can tell, my energy is super high because I just get super excited to talk to people that like really know what they're talking about because I get to learn something and the listeners get to learn something. So with that being said, what are the five stages of grief? So here's what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to give you my take on the five stages of grief. And then I'm going to tell you some of the things that I think actually really help people who are grieving. So that, yes, the five stages of grief, I don't like them. And here's why. The groundbreaking research that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did to initially develop the five stages of grief, that research was not based on people like myself or anyone else who listens to this podcast who maybe has experienced the recent loss of a loved one or a pregnancy or a marriage or whatever. The research was based on people who were actively dying themselves. And so these stages were the stages that she observed terminally ill patients going through as they marched to death. And so over time, this framework has been misapplied through some sort of fucked up game of telephone, and it ends up making people feel like they aren't doing grief right. Because at the end of the day, you know, when we hear stages, you know, because like right now, like I said, I've said a few times, I have a toddler. And so we're in the back of our mind, you know, we always see about the developmental stages and milestones that kids are supposed to go through as they continue to grow. And it's sequential, you know, it's, it's a series of ordered steps. And I feel like when you hear about the five stages of grief, you think about those developmental milestones or the 12 step program or, you know, things that are supposed to be done in a particular order and that are essentially the same or close to the same for everyone. And that's not how grief works. Like even in my book, Grief is Love, you know, I try to be very clear with people what I've written. I hope it can serve as a bit of a compass if you are navigating grief. Like I cannot give you a list of prescribed steps because grief hits us all differently. But what I can share with you are the things that I know that are informed by research that help make grief easier to bear. The first chapter in Grief is Love and the longest chapter is titled Permission because fundamentally, I think people struggle to give themselves permission to grieve because we are all living in this incredibly grief-averse society. And you need to be willing to give yourself permission to experience whatever comes up for you around grief indefinitely in order to heal. So like that's step one. Step two, get rid of all of the timelines you have in your mind for how long you're supposed to grieve, get rid of the stages, get rid of anything that you think you have to do because it is different for everybody. You know, there are people who are weeping and wailing at the funeral. There are people who are silent at the funeral and fall apart in the grocery store weeks later. Like there are people who feel like they have some sense of relief after losing a loved one if there was a long period of caretaking before then. And then there are people who encounter things like guilt, you know, like they're all different feelings and emotions and like different ways of being with these feelings and emotions. So just let yourself be and get rid of anything that you think you have to do or that you think you should do. Fundamentally, feelings, and you're going to have a lot of them if you're grieving. The one thing that we know makes it easier to bear challenging emotions is naming them. You know, when we name our feelings, we reduce their power over us. So if you're worried that admitting that you're feeling overwhelmed, anxious, depressed, you know, incredibly sad, devastated, whatever is going to overwhelm you, it actually has the opposite effect. Asking for help is, I know, isn't that crazy? And I'm telling you, if you try it, like it, it works. And you don't even necessarily have to 
share your feelings with another person, but naming them out loud or writing them out, like something to get them out of your system makes a difference. And again, that's like a science one. That's not uh, a uh, Marissa one. Asking for help. Like nothing that is hard in this world is ever accomplished in isolation. So whether we're talking about, you know, President Obama becoming President Obama or Jeff Bezos becoming, you know, the dickhead billionaire that he is, like whatever you're talking, like help was required. Jeff Bezos started Amazon with a $250,000 loan from his parents. Okay. Yeah. For context. Like, yeah. Oh, right? right. I mean, uh-huh. I mean, good, good on him for like putting it back in yeah. the business. I would have bought like a fire ass whip and like 50 pairs of Jordans and blew that money. So like, you yes. know, like, yes. like that, but like, he did have a plan. He did. Yeah, have but a he's, plan. Like, he's like turned into like Lex Luthor now. He looks like he's on like steroids and shit. He's really, so everything requires help. So be prepared to ask for help. And if you're listening and you're like, oh, my friend is grieving. I don't know what to do. How do I help them? Don't ask them what you can do for them. Instead, think of help in three categories. One is just being with them. You know, my friends who came over the night we found out about our pregnancy loss, it meant the world to me. All we did was watch American Ninja Warrior and like eat cookies and drink bourbon, and it was great. Two, there's like the practical stuff. You know, if someone is grieving, their body and their brain are going through a process of adaptation to accommodate for and like understand the loss that has occurred. That makes it harder to do your work, harder to focus, harder to get things done. And so if someone in your life is grieving, like pick up their dry cleaning, drop off a meal, watch their kids, like do those kinds of practical things to help them because it absolutely makes a difference. Yeah, exactly. And then the third one, and this is one of my most favorite categories, do something for them that either speaks to who they are as a person, independent of this super sad time. Or that maybe reminds them of their person who's no longer here. You know, I've gotten these beautiful boxes of cheese. Somebody gave me black Santa Claus earrings once. You know, be creative, like just be authentic and give them something to smile about. The last thing, and you know, this is how the book ends. Like at the end of the day, if you are grieving something, it is because you really loved and still do love something or someone. And you have to find your own way to continue to honor that love, to feel that love, and to be okay with the absence. I love that. Because you want to know what it is? It's like, uh, I spoke to my friend about this once. Uh, his his girlfriend of like four or five years left him. And we were having a conversation. He was really sad and crying. And he was like really depressed. I was like, no, nah, man. I was like, you're going through grief, man. I'd say you were depressed. You didn't give a shit. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'd be really worried about you. Like, this is all really normal stuff. I'll sit here and cry with you all day if you want to. Yeah. We can cry together. Gotta get it out. Yeah. I said, the fact that you're crying is a good thing. Like, it shows it's that normal. you're normal. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, yes. I'd be more worried if you're like, I don't give a shit about that. Dude. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. I'd be like, this dude's you're a liar. Yeah. 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 Exactly. I was like, dude, this dude is struggling because he's not going to do that. But no, I just really think that's a really great point. I've had funerals where I kind of held it together, and then I have funerals. Where like I'm like no nah, I'm going like you know yeah. I, like I'm letting it blow today like this is a really tough one, but I really really love that and also too like the five stages of grief it's the thing with like mental stuff it's not like a like a tumor that can metastasize you know what I mean like uh, yeah it can't be studied that way so like when you hear like five stages like I, I'm always like is that really like how it works also those people were grieving too because they're dying and you're giving them homework yeah <laughs> fair. <laughs> 
fair. You know what I mean? Shit, let me die. Yeah, no, that's real. That's real. Homework for you now? But, you know, listen, I could talk to you all day. I just wanted to ask one last question about public speaking, right? So we're talking glamour. We're talking Vogue, MSNBC, The Atlantic. These are big boppers here. Do you get nervous (laughs) when you do that shit? I get a little bit nervous and like jittery before bigger TV hits. Like I can't eat breakfast. You know what I mean? Because I'm like, no, like I totally have like the nervous stomach, but I was a theater kid and I feel like that training, you know, like as dorky as that sounds like that training just comes back and you're like, okay, like this is the role that I'm playing. These are the things that I know. And once you do a couple of those interviews, you realize you just have to decide what you're going to say in advance for the most part. You find your way to stick with it no matter what they ask you. All right. See, I like that. You want to know what it is? If it's in a comedy sense, I can articulate myself like William Shakespeare. But like when it comes to like normal stuff, I'm like, duh, duh, duh. Yeah. You just have to say, like in every interview, I'm like, I'm going to give my definition of grief. I'm going to make sure people know how to support someone who's grieving. I'm going to share like the love piece because that just always feels super important to me. Like, th- like those are the things that I try to make sure... I touch on in every conversation. Absolutely. How are you feeling though now? Health wise, everything mentally doing okay? I'm I mean, honestly, it's been it's been a rough time. My mother-in-law is at the very end of her life. And it's just really hard watching someone you care about like go through the thing that you know too much about. You know? Like it's just it's shitty. And like, there's nothing I can do to save Matt from this experience. And I am a fixer. Like, that's what I do for a living. You know, that's what organizations pay me for to like come in and help them solve big problems. And like, I can't solve it. And so just like showing up and being in the grief and trying to find ways to make this last visit back to Wisconsin as beautiful and lovely for my husband and my kid and my mother-in-law as possible this is exhausting. like when you get older i saw like shit my mom had to deal with and like my, it's, it's it's not the best it's yeah. you know what I mean? it's uh i don't recommend I, it I couldn't, I couldn't do it you talk about reconciling with grief right how can one reconcile with grief so for me i realized You know, I am never going to fully accept the fact that my mom is no longer physically in this world. You know, like I know the facts. I I was there when she died. You know, it was over 15 years ago. Like I get it. I know that all that happened. But I think reconciling with grief is accepting that because you're still going to want them here, you're going to have to make space for grief throughout your life. And sometimes you're going to see it coming and it's going to be obvious. Like, you know, I still feel weird around what would have been the due date for the baby that we never had, you know? And it's like, and like, I get kind of like angsty, like Mother's Day is still tricky and triggering for me, even now with a kid of my own and I get presents. Like, you know, it's still a weird one. Um, and then there are the unexpected things. Like I, I love birthdays. I have no issues with getting older. But there was something, and it took me a while to figure it out. There was something about turning 40 and entering the decade that my mom never made it out of that was really hard. And so for me, reconciling with grief is really just saying, there's nothing wrong with me. It is okay if I have these weird feelings every so often, indefinitely. 
Yeah, right. No, I agree. Listen, it's like I used to be one of those guys like uh, I didn't ask to be here. You know, I used to be like one of those guys. I'm like, you know, I, I might as well kill it while I'm here. You know what I mean? Yeah. What other choice do I have? You know, exactly. There's so many like external influences, whether it be negative or positive. And it's like, dude, like I'm going to be gone out of here. Let's do some dope shit. Exactly. You know, exactly. like let's enjoy our life. You know, I never got to smell President Obama, but you know, I still got time. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's probably a little more accessible now. I did read his 948 page book. So, you know, I what did I mean? not. <laughs> it's so long. No. <laughs> No, I listened to the second half. I read the first half, so I'd be lying to say I read it all in No, here's the thing: the thing about presidential biographies, nobody wants to be the person editing a former leader of the free world. Yeah, don't fuck that up. I think they often don't get heavily edited because of that. Mm. Like nobody needs to write a 900-page book. I love <laughs> you, Barack Obama. I love you. I love you. I love you. I'm so grateful for my time serving under your leadership and your administration. But also, like, no, like, <laughs> fuck this book, dude. This is too long. Like, like the Bible is barely that long. You know what I mean? Like, what? Like, it's one of those things because it was like the first president I really like voted for. So it's like I want to know, like, wait, what was going on with like when I was like 18 years old? Oh. Like, I'm 34 now. It's crazy. Isn't that wild? Photoshop. Oh, so crazy. So he, crazy. He's old news. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like he's been out, out for a while. I mean, he looks fantastic now. The last question that I ask everybody on this show before we, we get out of here is, are you happy today in the moment right now? This has been a very pleasant conversation during a difficult time. The joy is like in and out right now, but that's just, you know, that's just the way it is right now. And that's okay. And yeah. I'm still going to Beyonce. So. You want to be okay. Happiness is fleeting, but so I think sadness is too, though. Yeah, I agree. The, being able to be a human and to experience like 4,000 bajillion emotions in one day is kind of cool. That's the way it is. You got to accept it. Like, it's just yeah. kind of cool. It's just, it's it, the, the human body is the coolest creation ever on earth. Agreed. You know, Agreed. everything cool that we need is like, you got to plug it into the wall and you have to do all this. We don't yeah. need that. You know what no. I mean? We're part electrical. We're kind of cool if you really think about it. You got to think yeah, about it. Yeah, no, you're right. As flawed as the, the human body is, it's still like an, an amazing thing. And I just want to say thank you so much for spending time with us. Where can everybody find the book? Where can they find you on the internet? What do you have coming up? Everywhere on the internet, I am Marissa Renee Lee. It's my website, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all the things. You can buy my book anywhere books are sold. You can buy Amazon, Target, independent bookstores. Bookshop.org is great if you want an independent option. I have a big retreat coming up at the Art of Living Retreat Center in September, September 22nd through the 24th. And I would love to meet as many people as possible in real life there. And my paperback is coming out in October. So please just keep buying the book. And I've been your host, Daniel Priori. Again, thank you uh, so much for coming on, Marissa. It's been a fantastic conversation. You can follow us at one on one OTC everywhere. I'm at Daniel Priori everywhere. I hope you guys are having a fantastic day. Take some time to take care of yourself, and we will see you next week. Peace. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Off the Cuff, presented to you by One on One Life. 
If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and send us some love with a review. And don't forget, we're all in this together and you're never alone. Peace. Fate Entertainment. Ah!